Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. Well, welcome to episode 12 of A History of the King James Bible Podcast. I'm your host, GK. It's June 2016, and this is part B of the first Oxford Company. Um, Now, if you haven't uh, listened to part A of the first Oxford Company translators, uh, you're going to need to go back to uh, episode 11 and listen to that, uh, because we're just going to jump right in here and carry on from episode 11 uh, the first Oxford company translated the Old Testament from Isaiah to Malachi. So we're going to be talking about the remaining translators on that panel that we didn't cover in episode 11. And then I'm going to talk to you um, around about the halfway mark here. I want to talk to you about a couple of emails I received and a few other things. Uh, then we're going to have a quick look at what they did translate. A little bit of their work, not too much. We'll just have a quick look at that. And uh, that'll finish us up for this episode. So let's dig in. Our next translator on the first Oxford Company panel is Dr. Richard Kilby, another DD. That's a Doctor of Divinity. I'll give you a brief bio here about Dr. Kilby, then we will turn to McClure for an insight into the man and how he put a green young preacher in his place. It's a very, very interesting story. Richard Kilby was born in 1560 in Leicestershire, reportedly to humble parents. When the first Oxford Company were hard at work in John Reynolds' house translating for the king, Kilby was rector of Lincoln College, where he had also been a fellow and a prebendary of Lincoln Cathedral. In 1610, he succeeded John Harding as Regius Professor of Hebrew. Now, there's a lot of talent on this panel, as I'm sure you've worked out as well. Um, It just really stands out to me in particular, this panel, just how many great scholars they have here. Okay, so to this anecdote, it comes from McClure's work. It has a couple of interesting elements to it. Um, Listen to it a couple of times if you don't get it the first time around, but it's about Kilby visiting a friend of a friend who is hosting a young preacher fresh out of seminary. The young preacher offers some advice about the new translation of the Bible, not knowing one of the translators is in the congregation. Later, he gets schooled by said translator, and he gets his nose just a little bit out of joint. Let's listen. There is one incident, however, related by honest Isaac Walton in his life of the celebrated Bishop Sanderson. The incident, as described by the amiable angler, is such a fine historical picture of the times, and so apposite to the purpose of this little volume, that it must be given in Walton's own words. I must here stop my reader and tell him that this Dr. Kilby was a man of so great learning and wisdom, and so excellent a critic in the Hebrew tongue, that he was made professor of it in this university, and was also so perfect a Grecian that he was by King James appointed to be one of the translators of the Bible, and that this doctor and Mr. Sanderson had frequent discourses and loved his father and son. The doctor was to ride a journey into Derbyshire and took Mr. Sanderson to bear him company. And they, resting on a Sunday with the doctor's friend, and going together to that parish church where they then were, 
found the young preacher to have no more discretion than to waste a great part of an hour allotted for his sermon in exceptions against the late translation of several words, not expecting such a hearer as Dr. Kilby, and showed three reasons why a particular word should have been otherwise translated. When evening prayer was ended, the preacher was invited to the doctor's friend's house, where, after some conference, the doctor told him he might have preached some more useful doctrine and not have filled his auditor's ears with needless exceptions against the late translation. And for that word for which he offered to that poor congregation three reasons why it ought to have been translated as he said, he and others had considered all them and found thirteen more considerable reasons why it was translated as now printed and told him if his friend then attending him should prove guilty of such indiscretion he should forfeit his favour to which mr sanderson said he hoped he should not and the preacher was so ingenuous as to say he would not justify himself and so i returned to oxford this digression of honest Isaac's pen may serve to illustrate the magisterial bearing of the heads of colleges and other great divines of those times, and also what was now become much rarer, the humility and submissiveness of the younger brethren. It also furnishes an incidental proof of the considerate and patient care with which our venerable translators studied the verbal accuracy of their work. When we hear young licentiates green from the seminary, displaying their smatterings of Hebrew and Greek by cavilling in their sermons at the common version and pompously telling how it ought to have been rendered, we cannot but wish that the apparition of Dr. Kilby's frowning ghost might haunt them. Doubtless, the translation is susceptible of improvement in certain places, but this is not a task for every new-fledged graduate, nor can it be very often attempted without shaking the confidence of the common people in our unsurpassed version and without causing the trumpet to give an uncertain sound. Okay, so I hope that story made sense to you. Did you like Kilby schooling him just a little bit about translating? The young preacher suggests three ways a word could have been translated, and Kilby tells him, yes, we considered those three, and 13 more reasons why it was translated as now printed. One thing it tells me, know your audience. You never know who's listening, do you? <laughs> a noted preacher, Kilby died in 1620 at the age of 60, nine years after the King James Version was published. Okay, so now to Richard Brett, another DD. Born in London in 1567, Brett later entered Hart Hall, Oxford, where he took his first degree. A very hard worker, Brett was later made a Fellow of Lincoln College where he excelled in the languages, divinity and other branches of science. He became a Doctor of Divinity in 1605, so this is during the translation, and he was skilled and versed to a criticism in, are you ready for the list? Here we go. Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldee, Arabic, and Ethiopic. Another legend is what I'm thinking. It was said of him that he was a most vigilant pastor, a diligent preacher of God's word, a liberal benefactor to the poor, a faithful friend and a good neighbour. How many of us will be described like this after we pop our clogs? It's something to consider. Brett died in 1637 at the age of 70 and is buried in the chancel of the church where he preached for 43 years. Uh, the chancel in the church is the space around the altar. And now we have a fair nickham mystery. 
That is, we need to work out who our next translator is. Actually, we've got two mysteries coming up here. We will deal with them one by one. This one is a mystery. So, who is our next translator? Richard Fairclough, Daniel Fairclough, or Daniel Featley? That is our mystery to work this out, ladies and gentlemen. Depending on who you read, and there are options here, our next translator on this panel is... Well, Offull says that it was a Richard Fairclough, rector of Bucknell, Oxfordshire, and that it could not have been Daniel Fairclough, who, being a protege of Reynolds, was only 22 years old in 1604 and too young to have been a translator. However, McClure says that it was Daniel Fairclough, otherwise known as Dr. Daniel Featley, which is a corrupt translation of the surname Fairclough. He says that Daniel Fairclough slash Featley was 26 when nominated to be a translator, and he was a distinguished scholar who preached at Reynolds' funeral. To add to the confusion, another source says that he was 24 years old. Now, I've read an argument against McClure's assertions. I've also read that some researchers give one name with another person's details. That is, you know, it's they say it's this guy's name, but they provide the other guy's bio. So you can see it's a bit of a mix-up and a bit of a, a bit of confusion here, and it is a mystery. I've looked at uh, antique and some more modern sources. I'm happy to put my hand up here and say, look, I just don't know. And um, that really grinds my gears. This is the sort of stuff that I want to know. The details. I like them. I'm going to have to put this one on the back burner for now and be satisfied that there was a seventh member of the team whose name was one of the above. <laughs> All right. So, take your pick. Our next mystery, because was this guy a translator or not? On some lists it says there were seven translators, okay? And with that seventh guy, they don't know, you know, there's those three choices of names there. But we do have a potential eighth member of this panel, William Thorne. Now, let's say perhaps another member of the first Oxford company, William Thorne. Opful says his name does not appear on any lists, but in 1606, 14 bishops requested further promotion for Thorne, who, quote, is now likewise very necessarily employed in the translation of that part of the Old Testament, which is now remitted to Oxford. Thorne was born at Semley, Wiltshire, in 1568 or 1569, he entered Winchester College in 1582, proceeding to New College, Oxford. He matriculated on 15 April 1586 and was elected a Fellow in 1587. He graduated BA in 1589, MA in 1593, BD in 1600 and DD in 1602. From 1598 until 1604 he was, here we have another one, Regius Professor of Hebrew. 1601, he became Dean of Chichester and in the same year received the rectory of Tollard Royal, Wiltshire, resigning his fellowship in 1602. In 1606, he became Vicar of Amport, Hampshire. In 1607, a Canon of Chichester and Rector of Burdham, Sussex. In 1616, he became Rector of North Marden, Sussex, and in 1619 of Warblington, Hampshire. 
He was a noted Hebrewist and Orientalist with a reputation extending beyond England. He died in 1630 and was buried in Chichester Cathedral. Now, was he a translator? Well, I've read that two of the bishops who requested preferment for him were themselves translators, so surely these guys are going to know who was and who was not on the panel. So perhaps he joined the panel later, uh, later than the others did, like he was on the, on the original list, um, and perhaps he joined as a replacement for one of the deaths, which, you know, as we've seen as we've gone along, there's been a couple of, there were, there were a couple of deaths uh, early on. But that one is also uh, in the mystery category, and um, I'm not sure if it is as much a mystery as the other one, to be honest, but let's call them both mysteries for now. Okay, so that is our panel of translators for the first Oxford company. It certainly holds some skilled linguists, and it certainly contains its fair share of Puritans, doesn't it? The panel included college heads, Regius professors, a vicar, and more. For my money, it's one of the more interesting panels so far. Now, we've got three more teams to go, and we will get to them in the future, but now we need to address their work briefly. And we'll do that just after these announcements. Oh, and also, um, what I might do at the end of this episode as well, and I didn't talk about this in the, in the introduction, is uh, I might offer a bit of a scorecard for the teams that we've already covered. Um so make sure you stay listening for that. Okay, so now to a couple of announcements. First up, I want to give a shout out to Johnny from The Iron Show. Gold star for you, Johnny, for the funniest email I've received to date. Please pat Blackie for me next time you pick him up, mate. Also, a big good day to Jim in Mississippi. Thank you for your emails and for giving me the most de detailed feedback so far. And uh, also to Dean from Ontario, thank you for your suggestions. I appreciate hearing from you. Um, and I said this on my other show, Life Flint Radio, there must be something in the water in Ohio and Oklahoma because I've spoken to a number of people uh, from both those states and um, wonderful, intelligent and friendly people seem to come from Ohio and Oklahoma. And uh, well, it's outstanding. Don't forget, if you want to write to me, you can email me gk at likeflintradio.com, all lowercase, gk at likeflintradio.com. And can I ask you to share the show on Facebook, please? Um, just share it on your wall, uh, share it in any groups that you think might be relevant. And um, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who is sharing the show, sharing the series faithfully every time on Facebook and other avenues. Thank you so much for doing that. I uh, really appreciate that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Acrolith, who are the band who bring you the series theme song, Words of Wisdom. I've had some more inquiries about them, so please visit them at acrolith.bandcamp.com or acrolith.net. If you want to hear more, you can go to Like Flint Radio and um, go to the go to the archives and listen to the interview I did with the lads from Acrolith. Uh, just go to Like Flint Radio archives and listen to show number thirty nine. I think I play three full tracks of theirs in that interview, or you can head over to their website and pick up their CD. And it's a CD on which I had the honour of doing a couple of spoken word introductions. So there you go, Acrolith, great band, good bunch of guys from Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, so moving on, I'm planning to have a bit of a break. 
the stats are telling me that many of my American audience is in summer barbecue mode and being an Aussie, I'm all for that. So I'm going to take a bit of a break, which will give me more time to work on another project I have in mind for Like Flint Radio and to do some interviews for Like Flint Radio and also to research for future episodes of this series. Um, you know, it's not that I'm not doing that. I'm well into a few future episodes already. Uh, in fact, I'm getting a little bit mixed up now. Um, I'm recording this second part of uh, the uh, first Cambridge. Is that who we're doing? Sorry, first Oxford guys. And um, I'm already thinking about the second Cambridge blokes. So I'm getting a bit mixed up here. So I need to get this one finished so I can get on to the other. So I am I am in research mode. I am in uh, writing mode. But um I do want to have a bit of a break. Uh, if I do have the time, I might squeeze in an episode for you in July. Uh, and the best way to make sure you don't miss any episodes is to go to the website and sign up for email notifications. Um, now, if I don't get to an episode in July, I will be back in August 2016. Uh, as early as possible in August, uh, I will try to get back. So um, how does that sound? Now... I hear some of you booing already, so to quell the rebellion, I will let you know that I've booked a guest for a History of the King James Bible podcast's first ever interview. I plan to record that soon, and I will post that in August, so we will all have that to look forward to, as well as we will get to an examination of our final three translator panels, and I'm telling you, there's some good stuff coming up. You know, I said that this one here is a great, great Awesome, just brilliant, interesting panel. Uh, but the next one um, is is pretty good as well. And uh, there's a person in that panel that we're going to be talking about a lot more as we continue. But anyway, beyond those three uh, final panels that we're going to discuss, I have oodles more episodes planned that we will get to, you know, God willing, uh, you know, lots of plans. And uh, so I need your prayers. Help me get this done. Help me get through it. But also, let's just enjoy the process. Uh, I'm enjoying this. I hope you're enjoying it as well. And uh, uh, as I said in the last episode, I don't want to rush it. Let's just uh, take our time and get there when we get there. Alrighty, so after this little break here, let's get back to our first Oxford company. And we're going to be looking at a comparison of their work with the earlier English versions. I'll see you on the other side of this break. You're listening to a History of the King James Bible podcast with G.K. The series is now available on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search for a History of the King James Bible podcast with G.K. Flint as the author. If you enjoy the series, please leave a rating and a review. You can also find links to every episode at our website. Just head to www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now let's get back to this episode with your host, G.K. Okay, so let's now turn to a brief comparison, and this will be ever so brief, of the King James Version with the earlier English versions, and it's going to mainly, we're going to be here talking about, as usual, the comparison with the Geneva Bible. The assignment was the four or greater prophets with the Lamentations and the twelve lesser prophets. The four greater prophets were Amos, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. In order, the books were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, 
Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Thus the first Oxford company concerned itself with the powerful prophets, who spoke directly and passionately in the name of God to the backsliding peoples of Israel and Judah, inveighing against social and religious sins and calling for reformation. According to Butterworth, this section is a substantial revision of the Geneva translation with a heightening of the literary effect. Next after Geneva, the Oxford men were somewhat influenced by Coverdale, who in turn was influenced by Tyndale's Jonah and by versions of Isaiah and Jeremiah produced by George Joy. The Wycliffe Bible also suggests some material. Compared to Oxford's felicity of phrasing, however, Coverdale and Geneva sound clumsy in a famous passage from Isaiah 2 verse 4. Coverdale, they shall break their swords and spears to make scythes, sickles and saws thereof. From that time forth shall not one people lift up weapon against another, neither shall they learn to fight from thenceforth. Geneva They shall break their swords also into mattocks, and their spears into scythes. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn to fight any more. King James They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. At times, in stylistic variation, the Oxford men felt free to present different versions of identical passages. In the original Hebrew, Isaiah 35 verse 10 is the same as Isaiah 51 verse 11. The Oxford translation of Isaiah 35 verse 10 reads, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and signing shall flee away. The Oxford translation of Isaiah 51.11 reads, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Isaiah was not the only book they made memorable. They did well also by Amos, Jeremiah, and Nahum, where superb word pictures abound. Hosea challenged them to make vivid comparisons. Hosea 4 verse 16, For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer, and Nahum to invoke a moving epitaph. Thy shepherd slumber, O king of Ashur, Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Nahum 3 verse 18. Finally, a comparison shows how in Micah they were brought to beautiful heights. Coverdale's translation of Micah 6 verse 8 reads, I will show thee, O man, what is good, and what the Lord requireth of thee, namely to do right, to have pleasure in loving kindness, to be lowly, and to walk with thy God. The King James translation of Micah 6 verse 8 reads, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Hey, so how about those Oxford lads? Translating Isaiah 35.10 and Isaiah 51.11 differently, despite the Hebrew being identical. 
What do you think that's about? Perhaps it's a context issue. That's what I'm thinking at this point. Um, I want to look at another portion of Isaiah and do a comparison between the Geneva and the King James Version. I want to look at one of my favorite portions of scripture from Isaiah. So that's why I chose this, uh, just being totally honest with you here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Geneva verse first, and then I'll read the King James Version verse following that. Alrighty, so this is about King Uzziah or Uzziah, Isaiah chapter 6. And the Geneva has its notations, you know, in the margins that King James was so much against. So for verse 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. And so in verse 1, uh, the marginal notation is, Isaiah showeth his vocation by the vision of the divine majesty. Okay, so here we go. Verse 1. In the year of the death of King Uzziah, I saw also the Lord sitting upon an high throne and lifted up, and the lower parts thereof filled the temple. King James Version. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Verse 2. The seraphim stood upon it, Everyone had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4. And the lintels of the door cheeks moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of polluted lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of polluted lips, for mine eyes have seen the King and Lord of hosts. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me with an hot coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the tongs. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. So you can see there's not a lot of difference. It doesn't change too much. There's a word here, a word there. Um, I think verse 1 um uh, seemed to flow better and sounded a bit more uh, readable for me in um, the King James Version. But other than that, you can see that they're very, very close, aren't they? But I just wanted to do that one uh, in a way for my sake because um, <laughs> it is one of my uh, favorite portions of Scripture from Isaiah. I just love that chapter 6. Okay, now... After Isaiah chapter 6, I went to look for more verses to compare. So I went straight to Isaiah 14, which mentions the king of Babylon and Lucifer. And I also looked at Ezekiel chapter 28, 
which these guys uh, translated, uh, which talks about the king of Tyre and a reference to him having been in the Garden of Eden. But they are so similar in both the King James Version and the Geneva, I saw no point in discussing them. Um, and to be honest, that was a little bit disappointing. I was looking forward to having some fun with those. Um, you know, I was dead keen for a comparison because many believe these chapters reference the enemy of God, uh, that being Satan. Um, now, this is not the place for a discussion about that, but I suggest if you have a mind to read the full chapters in context. So that's uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Read them in context. Uh, read the full chapters and um, see who is being referred to. See what you think. Find out what Lucifer means in Latin and uh, and decide for yourself. Now, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to do a bit of a scorecard here. So we might leave our comparison there for now and just move on to a very brief check of the leaderboard and see how the teams compare at this stage. Just before we do that, I will briefly, in a GK-type paraphrase, tell you how the marvellous work of the translation was intended to proceed. This is just a bit of an update and a bit of a reminder. So the intention was that there would be six teams or panels of translators called companies. Each would have responsibility for a portion of the Bible. Each man's work would be examined within the team. After the work was done, and this is what we will come to in the future, after the work was done, a committee of 12, two from each company, was set to review the work. Now, we won't get into the details here, but some sources say six were to do the review, two from each place, and not from each company. So that will be something we will examine in the future. Then, after that, there were to be two editors, and then we'll find out if good old... Bishop Bancroft gave the whole thing a bit of a massage before it was printed. Let's consider some of this conjecture for now so that we don't have any spoilers slipped in here, but suffice enough to say this whole project had plenty of checks and balances worked into it, and that's why it's a good version. It wasn't translated by a committee of one. Okay, enough of that because we're going to get too far ahead of ourselves if I carry on here. Let's go to the leaderboard. This is just for a bit of fun, but it's based upon some anecdotal evidence. So we have just discussed the first Oxford company. It seems that the first Oxford company didn't get to their work quite as swiftly as the Cambridge boys did. And it seems since we are making a comparison, I might add that the Westminster lads were not as diligent at the start as the Cambridge men. We know this because Lancelot Andrews, the director of the First Westminster Company, said so. In a letter dated 1604, he wrote the following. Now, uh, this is a letter to uh, a fellow of his, and it might seem out of context, but it does mention um, the translation, so you'll see that it's relevant. And uh, let me find that to read that for you here. Now, I won't read the whole letter because it's not completely relevant. I'll just try and pick this portion out that mentions the translation and the bit here that I said where they're a little bit negligent. So he writes, But if I may have noticed from yourself or Mr. Claren too that you have vouchsafed me the favour, then you shall perceive well that I will not fail in obedience, though unless it be that I dare not promise, because I cannot perform aught else. For I learn every day more and more gladly. 
but that this afternoon is our translation time and most of our company are negligent. I would have seen you, but no translation shall hinder me if once I may understand I shall commit no error in coming. And so, commending me to you in mine ambition and every way beside, I take my leave this last of November, 1604, your very assured friend, L. Andrews. So, I'll just repeat what he said but that this afternoon is our translation time and most of our company are negligent. So, if you think about what I just said earlier about uh, the other companies, and this is anecdotal evidence, can I just say, go Cambridge. Finally, I want to share some of the first Oxford companies' uh, work that has crossed over Into American culture, indeed a famous speech that many outside of the United States are aware of. That is Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, delivered on the 28th of August 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial, Washington, D.C. Within that speech, Dr. King used two Bible verses that we can perhaps argue we have our scholars of the first Oxford Company to thank for. They're not word-for-word quotes, so we may have to be satisfied to call them illusions. They're a little bit more than illusions, as you're going to find out, but let's just call them that to keep ourselves safe here. First up, he used Amos. Amos 5, verse 24, reads, But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Now, in his speech, he said, No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Uh, Another verse he used in that speech was from Isaiah. Uh, It's a couple of verses from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 4 to 5. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And Dr. King said, I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So there you go. There's just a little bit extra for you uh, from our translators of the first Oxford company and something that has come over into uh, American culture unto this day. Alrighty, we will leave it there for now. Unless I do squeeze another episode in July, I will see you back here in August 2016. You can find the series on iTunes, you can find it at likeflintradio.com and you can find it at a history of the King James Bible Podcast.com, where I recommend you sign up for email notifications and that way you won't miss a thing. This is the History of the King James Bible Podcast. I am your host GK and until next time, God bless and hooroo.
According to Butts... <laughs> I deserve that. <laughs> it's pretty good. Oh. At <laughs> least there's a pause in there for you to break it. Yeah. That's going on the outtakes, Bart. <laughs> You just spoiled it. I have to do it again. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to edit it. The King's James translation. What? The King's James? <laughs> the end. That's the end of that chapter. Uh...